It will help to have a Bible. We're not going to read it again, but we'll be going through it together. This is the end of our series, The Man Who Prayed. The sixth in our series. You can get the whole set on tape if you like, or you can download it on computer if you have the facilities by looking at our website, The Blessings of Modern Technology. If you have a church Bible, just to help you find it, it's on page 361. 361. Few, if any of us, are unaware of the tragic circumstances surrounding the death of Dr. David Kelly, the government arms expert, and the Hutton inquiry set up to investigate the events surrounding it. Day by day we hear in our news media evidence of those involved in the matter, ranging from his superiors at the Ministry of Defence, the media in the form of the BBC, and members of the government, even including the Prime Minister. There has also been evidence from psychologists trying to explain the state of mind of Dr. Kelly on the day in which it appears he took his own life and the circumstances which led him to conclude that his life was no longer worth living. And in the Bible, in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19 and verse 4, we have the record of a man who reached a similar conclusion expressed in the prayer he prayed. For he was not just a man, but a man of God. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. The name of the man is Elijah, and we've been focusing on his life for these past weeks under the title, The Man Who Prayed. Ironically, the man who we saw a few weeks ago prayed for life, for the life of a boy who had died, now prays for death, for his own death. Hence our title today, Praying for Death. Now this is a very difficult and sensitive subject, and it touches some of us very deeply. But what I want to try and do today, is to conduct our own inquiry, into the circumstances surrounding Elijah's prayer, and the response of the Lord to it. Now, this is not just a matter of academic interest about something that happened around 2,700 years ago in Israel. It's of the utmost relevance to us today. It is an important matter on a personal level. For as we saw in our first study from the book of James and the New Testament, James comments on Elijah and says, he was a man just like us. And he says he was just like us in the way that he prayed. Not just for rain, but here for death. How many of us, if truth be told, have ever reached the point where we have had enough? If not in wanting to die, then in wanting to give up serving and following the Lord. And who knows, you may be at that point here in Charlotte Chapel this morning. In fact, that may be why you were here in Charlotte Chapel this morning. You've had enough. You want out. And if so, you need to know how the Lord responds to that kind of request. And if he is as ready to give up on you 
as you may be on him. But this low point in the life of Elijah also has much broader implications than the merely personal. It also raises theological questions, questions about God, which we will see are behind Elijah's prayer request. About if and when and how the Lord will fulfill his promised plans and purposes for our world and for human history. And so, with the help of the Holy Spirit, let's conduct our own inquiry as we focus on these events recorded in 1 Kings 19, 1-18, an inquiry into the events surrounding the death wish of the prophet Elijah. And I simply want to look at two things this morning, just to hang, pegs to hang our thinking on. First of all, I want to look at the prophet's request, his prayer, and then secondly, to look at the Lord's response, how the Lord answered. First of all, then, the prophet's request, and you'll find that in verses 1 through 4. Do keep the Bible right in front of you, because we're going to be looking closely at it. Although Elijah wants to die, he is not tempted to take his own life. Rather, he knows that his life, his times, are in the Lord's hands. And so, he asked the Lord to take his life. Verse 4, I have had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. Kind of ironic, isn't it? It's a song we love to sing in this church, take my life, but this is a different kind of take my life. Now, what has brought him to such a low point in his life, especially after it comes so soon after such a high point? So let's trace Elijah's journey. The first part of his journey is from the mountain to the desert. It begins with the literal high point on Mount Carmel, where the Lord dramatically answered his prayer, fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice he had prepared, the people of Israel fell prostrate on their faces and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. The 450 prophets of Baal, who had led the people into idolatry and sin, are discredited and then destroyed. And the day ends with the longed-for return of rain after three and a half years, as the prophet Elijah in the power of the Spirit of the Lord, runs ahead of King Ahab's chariot, 16 miles down the mountainside, till they arrive at the little town of Jezreel. But then in chapter 19, Elijah runs again. And this time, he is running away. Going, as they say in the military, AWOL. Absent without leave. Running away from his divine commission, running a hundred miles south from Jezreel to Beersheba, and then a furthest day's journey into the desert. And there, at last, he finally stops running and he sits down under a broom tree, and we read, he prayed that he might die. His journey began on the mountain, it ends in the desert. And this is the physical journey that Elijah took. But it is also an emotional journey. We might summarize it from the heights to the depths, from elation to depression. Now, as we come to this passage together, the great temptation for preachers, let alone counselors and psychologists, is to make too much of Elijah's psychological condition. To use this account, and I must confess to this error in the past, and I've thought better of my ways, you'll discover this morning, to use this as an account, an illustration of what happens when a good man cracks up. 
when I was a missionary candidate, we were introduced to a diagnostic scale for testing stress. It's called the Holmes-Rye scale, named after the two psychologists, Holmes and Rye, that invented it. And basically, it's a scale that gives a numerical score for events in your life. So, death of a spouse ranks 100. Um, I think you get 20 for moving house, 12 for Christmas. And you add them up in your life over a six-month period, and if it comes to over 200, alarm bell should ring and you need to back off because you're likely to crack up under stress. Now, if you were to count up the events in the life of Elijah on one day alone, the contest on Carmel, the fire from heaven, the slaughter of the prophets, the protracted prayer, 16-mile run down the mountainside, surely this explains then why he ran away and wanted to die. And that is what many commentators have concluded. And the clinching argument they see is that Elijah is intimidated by Jezebel's threat on his life. Let me just quote one or two. Ronald Wallace in his commentary writes, Elijah cracked up. As we read on, we see the man who, at whose courage all Israel had marveled, fleeing before the threat of a mere woman. And these male commentators uh, wax great on the power of a woman against 450 prophets. Another commentator writes that Elijah is transformed by Jezebel into a whimpering defeatist. However, although Elijah was undoubtedly psychologically affected by what happened, who wouldn't be? I don't think that's the main reason for his death wish. Rather, I believe that the main reason for his despair was not emotional, that was a symptom, but theological. For Elijah is above all else a man of God. So let me recommend a stimulating book on One Kings, a more recent book, and I heard the preacher preach in Glasgow recently, Dale Ralph Davis, an American pastor and professor, which offers an alternative understanding of this chapter. It's called The Wisdom and the Folly, and I recommend it to you. It's a stimulating read anyway. Just take a chapter a day and read through it. Now, he points out, and I want to point out to you, one of the keys which points us, I believe, in the right direction, not the wrong direction. Look at the text in front of you. You've got an NIV. Look at verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, if you've got an NIV, you'll see against the word afraid, a little A footmark, and at the bottom it says, or Elijah saw. Uh, this is not to baffle you with science, but most of you probably know that the Bible is based on text in the Old Testament on Hebrew and the New Testament that were written in Greek. And we have many different manuscripts. So when you read a little footnote, it normally means that some manuscripts say one thing and some say another thing. Now you wonder... Why are they confused about whether Elijah was afraid or whether Elijah saw? The simple answer is that in Hebrew, the two words for saw and afraid are very similar. And you can misread them. So how do you decide, if you're a scholar, which one you put into the Bible? Well, there are various ways of doing this, but one of the ways is to look at which manuscripts support which and which manuscripts are more reliable. And when you look at the evidence, there is overwhelming evidence in favour of saw, not afraid. You also ask a question, if a scribe was writing this out, which would he be more likely to change? Would he be more likely to change afraid to saw? No, because afraid seems to fit in. No, he'd be more likely to change it the other way. And in the older version of the Bible, you'll find that the word saw is there rather than afraid. And if this is the correct reading, which I su suggest to you very strongly it is, then it throws a different... It, 
heads us in a different direction in thinking about why Elijah ran away and wanted to die. He was not afraid of Jezebel or afraid to die. In fact, he wanted to die. And if he wanted to die, the best way to do it is stay where you are and Jezebel will do the job for you, Elijah. No, it was what he saw that filled him with such despair and prompted him to run away. You see, Elijah's despair, Elijah's journey was not just from elation to despair, but also, and more fundamentally, his journey was one from hope to disappointment. Yesterday, on Mount Carmel, ended on an amazing high for Elijah. Not only had the people confessed, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, But Ahab the king, for the first time on record, had followed the prophet's instructions. And he had literally followed the prophet, who symbolizes the word of God, as Elijah ran down in front of the chariot. And what is Elijah doing? As we saw in the last in our series, Elijah is leading the king in the right direction. He's saying, King, follow me. The word of the Lord is the answer. Listen to what I'm saying. I am bringing back the rain. The Lord is restoring his blessing on Israel. Now it's your big chance, king. And I guess as Elijah ran, he prayed. Because he knows they're coming up to the palace at Jezreel. And in the palace at Jezreel is Jezebel the queen. Is this not the Lord's hour? The moment for which Elijah had come on earth. The moment for which God had called him to turn the nation of Israel back on the right way. It is a crucial moment in the history of Israel. But his hopes are soon to be shattered by disappointment. You can imagine the scene as Ahab bursts into the, you know, the chariot screeches into the courtyard. And there's Jezebel up at the window. And Elijah runs out. I don't suppose he had umbrellas in those days. He probably got soaked to the skin, running in there. And he comes into the, to the queen, and the queen wants to know, what's happened? What's happened? But notice the emphasis placed in the story. Verse 1, as it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. You see, Elijah's hopes for Ahab are totally unfounded. For he's devoid of any spiritual understanding of what has happened. There is no mention of what the Lord has done on Mount Carmel, it's what Elijah has done. And there's no mention of fire or rain, but only the fact that Jezebel's prophets have all been wiped out. So all Elijah's hopes for Ahab are dashed, and with them any faint hope for change. As far as Jezebel is concerned, there is not even a spark of spiritual life that can be fanned into flame. Only an outburst of incandescent anger. As she sends a message to the prophet, so Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And when Elijah gets the news, when he sees what has happened, he runs for his life, until he reaches a place where he's far away from Jezebel's reach, where he sits down under a tree and asks for the Lord to take his life. Not Jezebel, that would be the ultimate triumph of evil over good. He sits down and he asks to die. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why people entertain suicidal thoughts. And this is not a comprehensive sermon about them in the least. But for the person who knows God, who believes in his word, who relies on his promises, who looks for him to fulfill his plans, the worst despair of all is that evil might triumph, that good might be frustrated, and that God is not sovereign after all. 
Now this is true on a personal level. Some of you know it. Some of you will find it out. When you have sought, for example, with courage and integrity to follow God's way and live like his son Jesus and yet others who do exactly the opposite seem to prosper at your benefit and thumb their noses at God and sneer at those who follow him. And at such times you can come to a point in your life where you feel like giving up. I've had enough, Lord. Let me die. I want out. But it is true on a larger scale as well. When you have lived long enough, as I have as a Christian, to see promised revivals fail to materialize, churches that once flourished now in decline and closed, turned into theatres, or theme pubs, when you've seen national and political life slide into despair and cynicism, in short, when you see evil triumph over good, are there not times when you're filled with despair and think, I'd like out? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Or at least to opt out of Christian service and say, I've had enough with the church and its promises and its failures and its lack of accountability. And as far as I'm concerned, Lord, I'm out of Christian service. Count me out. Or you may still be in church. Or you may not. Or you may still be sitting there, but as far as actual involvement, as far as serving the Lord with integrity and rolling up your sleeves and getting involved, you've had it, you're out of here. Some of you maybe have been there for years. And even as I speak this morning, it's too painful to think about the things that brought you to that point which you're going to have to deal with at some point which God will need to deal with and that was the place that Elijah arrived at when he reached the broom tree in the desert a day's journey from Beersheba on his journey from the mountain to the desert now if we stop there that would be pretty grim but thankfully it doesn't stop there for Elijah has not yet reached the end of his journey although he doesn't know it so look with me now at the Lord's response. Verses 5 to 18, which also includes Elijah's response to the Lord's response. But we'll look at it under this heading. Whenever we run away from the Lord, his plan is always to get us to change direction. To bring us to a point where we change direction. In fact, the Bible has a word for it. It's a Greek word, metanoia. It means repentance, a change of mind. Elijah ran away from the mountain to the desert. And now we're going to see that the Lord's plan is to take him in exactly the opposite direction. The Lord's plan is to take him from the desert to the mountain. A different mountain. A better mountain. Elijah prays his prayer. Look, verse 5. I've had enough. Why don't I? No better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Maybe he hoped the Lord would grant his request and that he'd wake up in heaven. And when he's awoken by an angel, maybe he thinks his prayer request has been granted. However, on this occasion, the only one that we know of, Elijah's prayer is not answered as he asked. Elijah has not gone to heaven, rather the angel has come to earth and bids him to get up and eat a cake of bread baked over hot coals. Now you know what angel cake is. 
and a jar of water. He eats and drinks and falls asleep again. Now notice then the first aspect of the Lord's response to Elijah's despair. The Lord's provision. Elijah is exhausted, he needs to rest. He is also hungry and thirsty, he needs to eat and drink. There is something incredibly practical and down to earth about the Lord's response to Elijah's despair. Those who are in the pastoral team often meet with people who are pretty sad and low and despairing. Some of them, some of you may be surprised that often one of the first things we say to them is, are you eating and drinking well, are you sleeping well, and I think you ought to go and see your GP. It doesn't sound too spiritual, does it? But you see, we're human beings. We're not spirits out here and bodies down here. We're, we're integrated people. The Lord who had provided a little cake, same word, and a jug, same word of oil, for his prophet through a widow in Zarephath is the same thing, but this time through an angel. The means doesn't matter too much. A second time, Elijah is awoken by the angel, and again he is told to get up and eat and drink, verse 7, but this time a reason is given. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Elijah obeys the angelic instructions, verse 8, so he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this raises a very important question. Whose idea was Horeb? Whose plan was it to go to this mountain? There are some people who think that Elijah got up from his eating and drinking and sort of staggered off in a general direction and found himself eventually on Mount Horeb 40 days away. It's a long way, 250 miles, to wind up on top of the mountain. Unlikely. Other people think, and there is more possibility in this, that this was Elijah's plan because Horeb, as we'll see, is really an alternative name for Sinai, which is the mountain where God gave his law through Moses, made the covenant with Israel. However, I'm pretty sure that the plan... The destination was determined by the Lord. It was the Lord's plan to bring Moses to the mountain of the Lord, to Mount Sinai, the place where God had made his covenant. The Lord will meet Elijah and will answer his prayer on Covenant Mountain. That's a long way and a hard road from the desert to Mount Horeb for Elijah. That assumes that the traditional location of Horeb and people still have documentaries about where Mount Sinai is, but let's assume it's in the southern Sinai desert, as the map on the screen says. It's a very long journey. But what I want to say at this point is that it's not just the destination that is important for Elijah. What is also important is the journey itself, the 40-day journey. The number 40 in the Bible often signifies a number involving preparation. If you know the Bible, you should know this. Our Lord, after his baptism, was tempted for 40 days and nights in the desert by Satan. After his resurrection, he spent 40 days preparing his disciples for his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps most significant of all, though, Elijah is retracing the steps of his ancestors. You know those that he is no better than in his prayer? He says, Lord, I'm no better than my ancestors. And the Lord says, okay, let's think about that. Let's travel along this road. It took them 40 years. Take Elijah 40 days. The Dutch commentator, pastor, an excellent book on one kings, M.B. Van Tevier, comments, 
As Elijah went back to the Mount of God, the Lord wanted him to think about Israel's stay in the wilderness. The route from Canaan to Horeb led Elijah past the graves of his forefathers. Every step of the way, he was reminded of the sins of his fathers and the wrath of God. If there is any place where the prophet would be confronted with the stubbornness of Israel, it was here along this route. But that was not the only thing the route brought to mind. Closely bound up with this journey was a testimony to the faithfulness of the Lord. In view of the fact that people had provoked the Lord for 40 years, it was amazing that he could be patient with them. He took no pleasure in most of them, but he still led his people on and brought them into Canaan. And that was the lesson of the journey for Elijah. That God is faithful. In spite of the stubbornness and unfaithfulness of his people, Elijah is being made to think about his prayer request and what underlies it. That God's plan has failed. That the people have deserted God. And God says along the route as he goes along, he says, Remember Elijah, I brought the people through. Even though most of the generation died in the desert, I still fulfill my plans. Elijah, think about this as you go 40 years, 40 days through the desert until you come to Hora. Again, there are echoes of the encounters Moses had with the Lord on Mount Hora. We don't have time to look at them, but if you're a Bible student, you need to look at Exodus 20, Exodus 33, Exodus 34. You'll see there's some interesting parallels there. With the two occasions, Moses went to the mountain. You remember the first time he got the Ten Commandments, the second time he went back up again to get the second version after the people had sinned. And there he encountered the Lord, and the Lord passed by and made his presence known to him as he hid in a cleft of a rock. Some people even suggested it was the same place exactly that the Lord brought Elijah to. We can't be sure about it. And that's not too important. But now Elijah appears before the same covenant God who asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you need to think a moment about what the Lord is saying here. Is this a criticism? If you want to hear an alternative version of this, then I preached on this nine years ago and took a totally different approach. Uh, and you can, you can hear right of it. I remember saying on the occasion, where do you put... You know, where do you put the emphasis here? Make sure you put the emphasis on the right syllable. You know, what is he saying here? Is he saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Who knows? But I don't think that. I think what is happening here is that Elijah is appearing before the covenant God on Covenant Mountain to state his case. And the Lord is the judge and he says, Okay, Elijah, state your position. What are you doing here? What's, what's your point? Now, Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me. That's my position. Now, I'll come back to us in a moment. This is the real issue that has prompted him to run away. It's hopeless, Lord. I'm the only one left. And these people of Israel, they've done all this. And you're the covenant God. You made this covenant on Mount Sinai. You said if the people disobeyed you and went away from you, you would do something about it. And I'm the only one left now and you've not done anything, Lord. Notice the first thing the Lord does. He doesn't say anything other than to say to Moses, the one thing he says, he doesn't respond to his specific request. He says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Verse 11. Again, the echoes of the same experience with Moses. Now look at verse 11 and 12, some of the best known verses in the book of Kings. Best known, 
most difficult to understand. All right? Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, graphic terms. The only problem is nobody knows what the last phrase means, specifically. It's translated here as a gentle whisper. Literally, in Hebrew, it says, the voice of a small silence, a thin silence. If you think of silence as being thin, and no doubt the boys on the back there with their amplifiers can explain what a thin sound is. Whatever the case, what's clear is the contrast with what goes before it, the frightening physical phenomena the wind, the earthquake, the fire. But what does it mean? Well, all sorts of theories have been proposed. Some say this demonstrates a progression in theology from the violence of Elijah who calls down fire from heaven and kills his opponents with the sword to acquire through a more peaceful religion. Sounds great until you read the next few verses where the Lord tells Elijah, right, these are these three guys and they're going to bump off everybody who disobeys me, alright? Forget it. Uh, further, some people say this is what religion is all about. It's just listening to the still, small voice within. Forget that as well, all right? It's just ridiculous. Surely the key here is the word voice. It's the same word that uses the voice of the Lord afterwards. What the Lord is saying is, you see, most of us like Elijah, we want big signs. Fire from heaven, surely that'll convince them, Lord. Earthquakes, that'll shake people up. Wind, blow them apart, Lord. And although the Lord sometimes gives these things, God's way of working is his small, gentle, persuasive voice through his word. See, Ahab and the people, that Ahab saw the fire fall from heaven. He saw the rain follow him down the mountain. Didn't make a fat lot of difference to him at all, frankly. Not a bit. It is the Lord's word that is important. And the Lord is saying to Elijah, don't give up or despair for my quiet words spoken by the prophet as we sang in our opening hymn. Will fulfill its purpose. So hearing the gentle whisper, Elijah emerges from the cave, his face covered with his cloak in reverence and fear. And he stands there and the voice then says, okay Elijah, state your case again. What are you doing here Elijah? What does Elijah say? He says exactly what he said before. I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Now most people say, self-pity. Got it all wrong. After all, there were 7,000 people and there's those 100 prophets that Obadiah hid in a cave. Sure they were, but where were they? On Mount Carmel. The only disputable point about this is the point about being Elijah being the only one left. And in that, he's absolutely right. And in what Elijah says here, he is stating what is the case. He has been zealous for the Lord Almighty. He's burnt himself out for God, literally. The Israelites have rejected his covenant. They have broken down his altars. They have put to death the prophets of the Lord. And he is the only one left, as far as appearances can tell. And if this is correct, then what follows, what the Lord says, makes sense. Because otherwise, verses 15 to 18 make no sense if you don't follow it this way. 
What does he then say? The Lord's promise is that, yes, Elijah, I agree with you. I will bring judgment upon these people and you're going to be the guy to appoint and anoint the people who will do it, those three instruments of my justice. But Elijah, remember this. I still have reserved for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. The Lord here is agreeing with Elijah. He's reaffirming his promise to Elijah that he will fulfill his plans. And back to us in our world. What we need to know most of all is this, that it's not a waste of time. Being a missionary in an obscure place for 50 years and seeing no one come to faith. It's not a waste of time preaching your heart out in a church where there's only a handful of people and very little response. It's not a waste of time if you are doing what God has called you to do faithfully despite appearances, despite what may seem to be happening in your own personal life. Hang on to this. God will vindicate his name and he will vindicate those who truly follow him in sincerity and truth. But God will also fulfill his plans. Although Elijah didn't realize it at this point, he was instrumental in God's instrument in saving the people of Israel from apostasy and from being wiped out on the face of the earth. And if he hadn't done it, you and I wouldn't be here, Charlotte Chapel wouldn't be here, Britain wouldn't have a Christian heritage, the whole history of the world wouldn't change because one man hung in there when God called him to follow him. Is that important? Now you may say, well... My life's not on that scale. No, it isn't. But our lives as God's people, individually, corporately together, as his local people in a church like this or in any church, if you're a visitor this morning, we are fulfilling God's great eternal purposes, which he will work out. And he does it primarily. Not through drama, fire, earthquake. That's Baal worship, largely. Showmanship. He does it through his word. His quiet voice that accomplishes his purposes in the world that's our encouragement almost finished let's bring it up to present as we seek answers to our despair in the face of our personal circumstances or the world situation I've got good news for you as Colin said right at the beginning of the service you don't need to go to the southern Sinai desert to sort this out to meet with the Lord that was the old covenant. BC. We have this glorious heritage that we live AD. We come to another mountain. Now turn finally in your Bibles, and we're almost through. I know we're a little late, but it's important. Hang in there. Hebrews 12. It's in the New Testament, page 1211. And verse 18. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Page 1211. The book of Hebrews is written, written to Jewish Christians who wanted to go back to Mount Sinai, to the old religion. This is what he says to them and to us. 
verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Would you want to go back to that mountain? No. But... Wonderful words, these, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to tell you this morning that the mountain that we come to is so much better so much more glorious. Just compare the two. And there we come to this mountain, to the heavenly Mount Zion. We have far greater privileges if we respond to the voice that speaks. God has spoken by the prophets. God has spoken through Christ Jesus. In the past, says Hebrews at the beginning, God spoke through the prophets in many and various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is God's final greatest word, the word of the gospel, the word that saves, the word that brings life, the word that brings you into God's family with thousands upon thousands of angels. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than Abel, which looked for judgment and restitution. It speaks of mercy and grace and forgiveness. You may have run away from God, blown it all, ruined your Christian reputation, and I tell you this morning, there is a place you can come and find forgiveness. You may not be a Christian at all this morning. And I simply say to you, I invite you as the word of God just to come to Christ. For there you find hope and life. And here you find the answers that God has got his plan. Oh, great plan. Began in eternity. Consummated in eternity. Crowned at the cross when Christ died. It's the fulfillment of all God's great plans. And you can be included in the church of the firstborn among the thousands upon thousands of angels and one day we'll look back and see that our lives had significance and that God was in control, that he was sovereign, that he was fulfilling his plans despite what we felt when we were overwhelmed by the circumstances that we faced and the grief in the face of death and sorrow and betrayal. Far greater privileges for those who respond. But I have to tell you this there are far greater penalties for those who refuse to listen. Look what it says. Verse 25, See to it then that you do not refuse him who speaks. See, it's the voice, you see? Him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised this is the future. That's what, this is what's coming. Once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. God is fulfilling his plans. His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. He will fulfill all his plans in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he says, if that's going to happen, there'll be a great shakeout in the end. And if you refuse the word of God, you have no excuse. Less excuse than those who lived in the old covenant who never saw the glories of Christ fully. Far greater penalties for those who refuse. Here's the conclusion. With this we finish. Therefore, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. 
and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For New Testament, same God. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together.